Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Western tanks have begun to arrive in Ukraine. The commander of its ground forces says a new counteroffensive could start soon. But President Zelensky says there'll be no new offensive until more Western weapons arrive. I take the message of the president. It's uh, basically saying the same thing. So yes, we are ready to do that. Just uh, please help us to do that together. So who will make the next big move on the battlefield and where? Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark will explain what's likely to come next. Also this week, a year on from a big change to the complaint system, there's a stark message for women in the army. Sexual crime must be reported to the police. And I'll say that again. Rape and sexual assault must be reported to the police. That is not a chain of command issue. That is a crime. And King Charles is in Germany for his first state visit as monarch on a mission to improve relations with our European neighbours. Could defence also be key? I think the UK and the EU realise this is a really important moment for us to put the last six or seven years behind us and look forward to how we will work together in the years ahead. Mike, hi. Uh, the boss likes his statistics, so I've got some uh, some numbers for you to start with today. Russia has lost 1,900 main battle tanks and 3,300 other armoured combat vehicles since it invaded Ukraine. They're the latest uh, estimates from the Ministry of Defence, which also say between 40 and 60,000 of Russian troops have been killed. Quite a lot to take in, isn't it? Yes, it is. This is a very big war for the Russians. And interestingly, the the Ministry of Defence said this week that they thought that total Russian casualties were about now in excess of 220,000. That Mm. is, so that assumes about 70 to 80,000 dead and the rest are wounded in or missing in action. And on the tank issue, yeah, 1,900 main battle tanks, um, that's an underestimate because those are only those which can be visually recorded and visually confirmed. And you can go onto the website of Oryx, O-R-Y-X, and you can see every single one of those 1,900 main battle tanks with a photograph. So those are the ones that can be visually confirmed. So there must be more. So they've lost mm. at least 1,900 main battle tanks. And that's, these are big losses. And of course, the Russians are now getting the idea, and it's coming from the, the Kremlin as well, that this is going to be a long war, that this is going to be painful. And the Kremlin are preparing the Russian public for that idea. And what about Ukraine's losses? How do they compare? Well, in uh, manpower, uh, the general belief is, and again, Ukraine are very cagey with their figures and you can't, you can't blame them. Um, it, it's probably pushing 100,000 total casualties probably about 30, maybe 40,000 dead, and their equipment losses are running at about a third. Again, using the Oryx figures, the underrepresented, visually confirmed figures, then their equipment is about a third the losses of, of Russia at the moment. And Mike, in terms of gains, this week we've seen the much trumpeted arrival of 18 German Leopard 2 tanks in Ukraine, along with at least the first of 14 British Challenger 2s. But given the numbers we've just been talking about, they seem like a, a drop in the ocean. Yes, I mean, they're they're more than a drop in the ocean in one way because they're very powerful, but numbers count in these sorts of wars. You know, as they say, quantity has a quality all of its own, as Stalin famously said, or is believed to have said, and um, the the numbers will have to be higher. The the magic number for the Ukrainians is about 100 main battle tanks. They they need 100 Western main battle tanks in order to put together a proper armoured brigade, then with um, armoured fighting vehicles, infantry fighting vehicles, artillery and so on. I mean, all our military friends out 
there will know this very well. They could maybe get by with two smaller armoured brigades of 50 tanks each, but nothing less than that. So 100 is the magic number, 200 will be a lot better. And if they can put together one or two armoured brigades, as I keep saying, if they do it properly, they will cut through anything the Russians have got on the ground. But until they reach that magic number of 100, they're not in a position to do anything, really. And we've been talking about the planned spring offensives for months now. President Zelensky says his won't happen, can't happen, until he gets more Western equipment. But Ukraine's land commander says it could happen soon. What do we expect? Well, uh, I mean, there's a lot of psychological warfare going on here, and the Ukrainians are really quite good at that. I mean, Zelensky says we need more weapons in every speech he makes, and he's got to say that. Of course he does. I mean, they, they need more of everything. And the question is, we all know that the Ukrainians are planning this spring offensive, but we know it also depends on the weather. And I keep an eye on the weather forecast this week and next week in Dnipro, for instance, which is a good sort of centre to work it at. It's uh, it's about 10 degrees during the day. It's above freezing all the time now. It's, it's wet. It's going to rain more or less every other day for the next two weeks. So the, the Ukrainians are into their spring wet season, which lasts about a month. And until the ground dries, you're not going to use your armoured brigades to their fullest effect unless the ground is reasonably hard. So I think we can assume that they're giving themselves at least April to keep on preparing, as long as they don't lose too much ground to these Russian pushes in the Donbass. And believe me, they're paying heavily for holding ground. If they can hold by a bit more time for another month, then we might see something in the end of April, early May, when the weather starts to get warmer and the ground gets harder. Well, we can talk now to Dr. Victoria Ovdovichenko. She's an expert in strategic communication who's advised Ukraine's government and associate professor at Boris Grinchenko Kiev University. Victoria, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. We'll talk about the war effort in a moment. Can you just, though, paint a picture of what life is like in Kiev at the moment, please? Basically, in Kiev, life uh, is a kind of new normality, as we say, because uh, uh, normally, uh, there are many restaurants, bars open, pubs, so it means there are theatres and cinemas going on. But of course, there are also the challenges of the blackouts happening. So it's uh, something that uh, we experience as uh, a two worlds coming together, right? So of course, if there are sirens happening, you don't see so many people on the streets and everyone tries to find the bomb shelter or just to be in the places which are safe. And when it's not, so of course, life comes back and you see even a lot of traffic jams. We send this message as a strategically <laughs> direct enough that life wants to be back as normal. Of course, Kiev is a long way from the front line on the ground, but it does suffer bombardments from the air. We've heard many incredible stories of determination over the last year. How are people feeling now? It's different because, of course, you can hear in the news that Ukrainian people are resilient, and it's true. And sometimes uh, we can joke when it's time to joke, or just there are some very positive news coming from the armed forces or territorial defense forces. But, of course, it's very much multiplied with the how the speed of such news can totally or immediately be changed to something very sad when a friend or relative gets wounded or hurt or dies even. So when you open the social media profile, sometimes it's scary. So it's all spectrum of emotions and therefore it's very hard to say whether it's something that Ukrainian people would like to have each and every day. But that's something what we are fighting for because the, our democratic freedoms and values is something what we stand each and every second. And Victoria, President 
Zelensky's remarks this week to a Japanese newspaper that there will be no new offensive from Ukraine until more Western weapons are delivered. Was that a good or bad thing for him to be saying? You know, it's uh, it depends because uh, as a, a communication expert, I do understand. So it's a kind of a slightly provocation, but still it's a call for action, first of all, uh, that when we're making a counteroffensive, uh, it's not only that people that we have to uh, put on the battlefield, but it's also the arms and vehicles that we have to put on the battlefield. And that's what we are lacking. So therefore, this message I'm reading personally, as it is, uh, mostly uh, basically to foster the support from the Western allies uh, for more of the weapon, and specifically the weapon that Ukraine requests. We need it not in the next year, but we need it now. And If you take that message at face value, when you hear from the commander of Ukraine's ground forces saying this week a fresh Ukrainian offensive might come very soon, what do you make of that? It seems like mixed messaging. No, it's not. Uh, That's what's my uh, point. Because, uh, you know, like, uh, as working within um, very different audiences, especially abroad, like working with Italian, German, French audiences and uh, British audiences, each and every message that we are producing should be tackling different audiences. I take the message of the president as the one is more, you know, kind of a call for action. And therefore, Commander-in-Chief is uh, basically saying the same thing. So, yes, we are ready to do that. Just uh, please help us to do that together. And if you accept that President Zelensky needs to send distinct and sometimes different messages to Western leaders or to Moscow, to his own population, can he actually do all of those things at the same time successfully? You know, the president is the president. He's uh, voicing what Ukrainian people want, right? But it's uh, in this case, when there are many actors being involved, uh, he's not uh, the only one who is going to voice in the messages correctly. The problem is uh, sometimes the messages are being uh, misunderstood. And in this respect, uh, I do think that uh, basically it's not only the uh, president, it's also each and every common Ukrainian who is voicing it, trying to uh, make a call for action. Only the Ukrainians are the ones to decide what's going to happen in their territories. And you're speaking to us from the UK, Victoria, and you were saying earlier how important it is for Ukrainians to advocate for Ukraine. What is, what is your message speaking from the UK? Um, the, my message are, are very much clear. Uh, it's uh, mostly to talk to more of, you, of Ukrainians, to get to, to know more of what Ukraine means and what Ukrainians are thinking, why they are, as you say, so re- uh, resilient. And it was a kind of a shock in 2022. For us, it was not. We were telling that uh, for the last nine years. So my message is clear. If you want the international ruling order and specifically international law to prevail, Let's uh, build the structures and think about that. But again, it will not uh, happen till uh, the atrocities and, uh, of course, uh, the Russian troops will be standing on uh, on the borders uh, and on the land, Ukrainian land, uh, which is sovereign and territory of our country. Really good to speak to you, Dr. Victoria Ovdovchenko. Thank you very much for your time. And Mike, when we were chatting a little earlier, you, you were saying about Ukraine that not a lot has changed on the map in terms of territorial gains on the ground, but a lot is actually going on in Ukraine. Yes, it is. I mean, it's clear that the Russians are getting stretched, even with their reinforcements. And it's interesting to look at what's being moved around. So they're taking good units away from areas in the Donbass in the north, in Kramina and Svatove, where they've been fighting their very important area for them. And they've taken, for instance, the, uh, who are they, the uh, the 98th 
VDV, the airborne, and they're sending them down to the south, to Vuladar. And they've taken elements from the, uh, the 36th Combined Arms Army. They're forming a new brigade, the 37th Motorized Brigade. They're sending them to Vuladar. And it's not just that they're transferring troops. It's the quality of the troops. They're sending some of their best units now, not to Bakhmut. They've given up on taking Bakhmut. They've left that with the Wagner Group. They're sending them much further south to Vuladar, which is strategically genuinely important. You know, we keep saying this. Bakhmut has very little strategic importance, but Vuladar really does have. And you can see the Russians are, are trying to reorientate their forces to have a bigger push down the, in the south where they still can, because they are getting stretched. And the Ukrainians are, they're playing games with these messaging, as Victoria was really saying. You know, they're speaking mm. to their allies, they're speaking to their own population, but they're speaking to their enemy as well. Because if you remember, they advertised the attack, uh, the big offensive against uh, Kherson in the summer. They were saying, we're coming, we're coming, we're going to liberate Kherson. And they kept even putting dates on it. And when the, when the Russians transferred forces to Kherson, they hit them in Kharkiv, where they were very weak. And so they're, they're clearly playing sort of mind games with the Russians here because they know that the Russians are quite stretched for good quality troops. It's fascinating stuff. Stay with us, Mike. Now, just over a year ago, the rules for investigating alleged sex offences within the armed forces were overhauled. The process was taken away from the chain of command following a damning MP's report that found the MOD and the forces were failing to protect service women. It was called a huge step forward in giving confidence to women to report sex attacks. But a hard-hitting appeal at the Army Service Women's Conference suggests that confidence still needs building. The Army Army's lead for diversity and inclusion, Lieutenant Colonel Rebecca Macklin, drew on her own experience as she asked others to step forward. You know, I've been that person. I've been walked in on in the shower. I was running an exercise and I was walked in on. And do you know what? I didn't want to be on that exercise anymore. I didn't want to be there. And quite frankly, I didn't want to be in the army anymore. Sexual crime must be reported to the police. And I'll say that again. Rape and sexual assault must be reported to the police. That is not a chain of command issue, that is a crime. And I'm telling you this because some people are not reporting it. Well, Rosie Layden was at the conference for SITREP. Very powerful stuff she said there, Rosie. Uh, Just to be clear, um, when she talks about the police, she is talking about the civilian police, isn't she? Yes, that's right. And it's clear she thinks the rule change doesn't mean job done then. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a trust issue, a question of lack of trust that female soldiers have in the system. And and I think defence knows that. Uh, In fact, one of the other speakers on stage with Colonel Macklin was Sam Day Forge. She's the MOD's Director of Conduct, Equity and Justice. And she also said she recognised a lot of unacceptable behaviours and crimes in the armed forces are going unreported. And she said she put that down to a lack of trust in the system. She said she believes service personnel who engage in what she called unacceptable behaviours should be kicked out of the armed forces. And that's why she and many others, including the Army Servicewoman's co-chair, Colonel Hannah Stoy, are urging soldiers to speak up. This is about our servicemen and our servicewomen having the opportunity to be heard and to report those unacceptable behaviours to make sure we can get after them and stop them in the organisation. And if we get it right, our trust increases and our operational uh, effectiveness will improve. And Rosie, Colonel Stoy points out this is about men as well as women. For there to be trust in the system, service women have to trust that army leadership as a whole is truly committed to zero tolerance of inappropriate sexual behaviour. 
Yes, absolutely. And I, I did hear some direct examples of zero tolerance in action at the conference. So there was a former commander of the Army Foundation College in Harrogate, Lieutenant Colonel Simon Fairbrother, and he described three cases. So one case where an officer was downgraded in rank and removed from his appointment for unwanted sexual touching. Then a junior soldier who verbally abused a female soldier on a Snapchat video, and that soldier was removed from service. And another junior junior soldier also removed from service for making a sexual comment about a female staff member. So so at least some evidence there that, that this zero tolerance policy is happening. And um, Lieutenant General Rafe Woodis, he's the commander of the field army and the army's gender champion. He was at the conference and listening hard to all these speakers. I think the army has been through a significant journey, a significant moment over the last few years. Uh, the the series of incidents that resulted in the Atherton report, uh, I think, have made us all pause to reflect on the things that we have not done but must, what should have done over the, over the years. And there is a determination in ways that I have not seen before at the senior end of the army in order to make do those wrongs. I really think it's refreshing to hear people as senior as General Wood is talking frankly about the need for improvement and potential missed opportunities for doing this before. But I think it's also important to remember that report he's talking about, the Atherton report, and you referred to it, Kate, at the beginning. That report recommended very clearly that the MOD removes rape and sexual assault cases from the military courts and into the civilian system. And although the MOD did take on a lot of recommendations from the report, they did not take on that, that key recommendation to, to take these cases out of the military system. And Rosie, there's a chicken and egg situation here as well, isn't there? The army says having more women will help combat these wrongs, as Lieutenant General Woodis calls them, but women need to be confident about their treatment to encourage more in. Oh, absolutely. It's difficult. I mean, talking about that report, well, one of the other clear findings is that lots of women serving in the armed forces, not just the army, across the armed forces, would recommend a career in the armed forces. So it's not all bad. Um, people do want to serve, but but there is also a question of, of critical mass. And, and that's something that was talked about at the, the conference. So at the moment, um, I think it's about 11% um, in the army um, that, are, that are women. And, and while it's such a minority to be a, a serving woman, then it's always going to be a bit harder. And the army are pushing to get to 30%. And that is proven in other organisations, again, cited by the conference, um, that once you get to those kind of numbers, it starts to make a difference. But it's very ambitious. I think the target is 2030. You know, that that's something we'll have to wait and see if they can achieve that. Rosie, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. And Mike, we've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Rules can change in a moment, but changing culture takes so much longer. Yes, it does. And, you know, I mean, in our society, we, we have these issues in, in every area, in the city, in the media, in sport. And of course, the military is a reflection of our society. But it's not good enough for the military to say, as they used to say, well, look, we do something special. We put our lives on the line and what we do is very special. And therefore, you know, we've got to be given a bit more slack. That's no good anymore. And, and I don't think military chiefs would argue that. And the point is, yes, the military is a reflection of our society, but the military aims to be the best version of ourselves, not an average version of ourselves and certainly not a worse version of ourselves with, with leeway to behave badly. The military is the best version of our society, so they've got to take this on. And it's a big, big change. Mm, expectations very high. Uh, now, a few days ago, the Armed Forces Minister James Heapy joined a two-day meeting of EU ministers discussing defence and security. Nothing odd in that, you might think, 
except Brexit, a process that has continued to strain relations even since we left the European Union more than three years ago. But now a new deal's been done, ending rows over Northern Ireland. The Windsor framework seems to mark a new chapter where the UK and EU tried to repair their friendship and work together again. And defence seems to be a prime candidate for cooperation. As we build on the success of the Windsor framework, I think the UK and the EU realise this is a really important moment for us to put the last six or seven years behind us and look forward to how we will work together in the years ahead. And actually security, defence, foreign policy is an area in which so often our interests align. And so really excited to be here for these few days to discuss the areas in the world that are of common concern and the opportunities for the UK and EU to work together ever more closely in the years ahead. Well, Mike will explain to us in a minute what it could mean for our armed forces. But first, let's just understand what the EU's part in defence is, because it can be confusing, especially as there's a lot of crossover with NATO in terms of membership. Joining us from Berlin to shed some light is Professor Marina Henker, Director of the Hertie Centre for International Security. Marina, thank you so much for your time. Let's break it down a bit, starting with the political part. What are the big decisions and actions from the EU that affect defense. So yeah, in uh, 1998, actually under the leadership of Tony Blair and Jacques Chirac, the French president at the time, the European Common Security and Defense Policy was created. It was in the midst of the Kosovo crisis. And the idea was that the EU, independent of NATO, can intervene in crisis. And here is the big difference already that you can see. NATO is generally perceived as the organ that protects the territory of the EU. So it's about territorial defense. And the EU security policy was created to be able to involve EU member states, but in crisis management. So not necessarily in territorial defense activities. And in terms of military operations, what does it do and how is it structured? So currently there are about 21 missions abroad. Most of them are fairly small. You have some of them are military operations. So, you know, they're actually comparable to UN peacekeeping operations, you know, a low to medium level intensity. The largest military operation that the EU ever launched was in Chad in 2008. It uh, intervened there in the civil war, but then probably You know, more important are uh, police and training missions. So here the EU uh, was involved um, in Iraq, training police officers in Mali, training border guards and and all sorts of other places in the world. A lot of them in Africa in these kind of like more low level training missions. And how's it decided, you know, which countries take part in those missions? That's absolutely on a voluntary basis. So the decision that a EU mission gets launched needs to be approved by all EU members in the EU Council. But then, exactly, by the way, as it is also in the United Nations, countries volunteer their forces or volunteer their trainers. So what you see very often is that it's an EU mission, but you only have four, five, sometimes six, seven EU member states actually being involved, participating actively with their forces. And what about the the background decisions um, on things like buying equipment and integrating forces? At this particular moment, there's, for example, the permanent structured cooperation where 
a bunch of EU member states cooperate, for example, in developing new capabilities, defense capabilities. There's also the European Defense Agency, where there's a coordination of uh, what type of industries uh, should focus on what type of capabilities on a European level. So there are all sorts of uh, mechanisms and, and organizations, but truth to be told, it's all a little bit in still in its infancy. So, you know, like it doesn't really rival NATO uh, in any sort of way. It doesn't rival NATO, but is there any benefit to the EU doing defence things? Because criticism often heard in the UK is that it's duplicating, almost uh, competing with NATO. So as you probably know, some EU member states, they would like to create a European strategic autonomy. That's kind of a buzzword that is uh, used a lot. Uh, and yes, it does involve that the EU can also be militarily independent. Some of these uh, folks would like to build up uh, the CSDP to truly become a, a full-blown military apparatus. But we're really, really far from that. So I, that, I don't really don't think that we can talk about duplication at this stage. Okay, so, so where do you think the UK and EU might be looking to work together again? I think the UK has formidable military capabilities and can really strengthen uh, CSTP. But, you know, now with the war in Ukraine, we also clearly see that there is a, a big turn away from EU-centric military operations and a focus again on NATO, who is clearly in the lead in uh, Ukraine. And so I think the big idea is to actually build up a European pillar in NATO. And here, you know, like CSTP can play a role. It has some kind of structures that can be turned into a European pillar of NATO. But of course, there are also some political problems. The big problem is Turkey. Turkey is a member of NATO, is not a member of the EU and has, you know, to a certain degree, a somewhat difficult uh, relationship with NATO. And that's why EU-NATO cooperation is sometimes hard. But uh, I think that is probably um, the best way forward. Really interesting to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Marina Hanker. Pleasure. Thank you. So, so, Mike, if the UK does create new defence ties with the EU, what's in it for the UK's armed forces and their capability? Um, ammunition, mainly, <laughs> and uh, a bit less bureaucracy. Uh, I mean, you know, Britain said during the Brexit discussions that we weren't going to have anything to do with PESCO, this permanent structured cooperation, which uh, Professor Hinkey men mentioned. But sensibly mm -hmm. now we are talking to PESCO because PESCO is about uh, cooperation in where, ways where you can make a difference, just be more uh, coordinated. And the EU has got a good initiative going to supply a million uh, 155 uh, millimeter artillery rounds straight away to Ukraine. Ukraine and to then purchase another million for everybody who donates to it. That's a good initiative. And the whole um, EU thrust at the moment is on capability. Thankfully, they've stopped talking about structures, which is the, the death knell of any sensible decision-making process. And they're starting talking about capability. What can we actually do to make a difference? So we won't see any new forces created as a result of this, but we'll see more efficiency in supplying the forces which are already there, I think. Yeah, and that, that ammunition you're talking about, uh, supplying quickly, is that part of the military mobility that can be gained then as, as an example of, of the positive side of these things, getting stuff yes. across the continent quickly? Yes, in the long run, because it's, it's become more and more difficult over the last 20 or 30 years to get, to get material from one end of the continent to another, significantly more difficult than it was in the 1960s. And NATO has been sort of thumping on that door for, dec for decades because of, of local planning regulations and, you know, where can you send uh, 70 
fleet on tanks, on a transporter and so on. This, this uh, war in Ukraine has convinced the Europeans that they've got to take on this issue. We've got to be able to move our forces around quickly and efficiently. In a real crisis, we'll say, who's got the forces? When can they get there? Go, please go and do something. Um, yeah. And that's kind of where we are now with the Ukrainian war. And Britain's been pretty sceptical in the past about EU defence structures. What won't we sign up to, do you think? Well, we won't sign up to anything that looks as if it duplicates NATO. And I think that argument is won now. The Ukrainian war has won it. One astonishing statistic is that the non-EU members of NATO now make up more than 80% of the military expenditure of NATO. So the EU, with its 27 members, contributes less than 20% of the budget. And so the argument that, that the EU is going to have strategic autonomy, is going to do this or that, I mean, that's a, that argument's been around for 50 years and it's no further forward, as Professor Henke said. Mm. You mentioned a couple of weeks ago the refresh of the integrated review is much warmer towards Europe. So, so do you think James Heapy's visit to Brussels was genuinely about more EU defence cooperation or was it more diplomatic to mend some fences? Um, I, th I think it was both. It was about specifics of cooperation and it was mending fences. And thank goodness we are doing that because I think the, the prospects are really quite good now, at least at the individual level. I mean, Ben Wallace might become next NATO Secretary General. That'd be very good. If the Conservatives do win the next election, then he might stay in post and James Heapy might stay in post. They'd be very good if they did. If Labour wins the next election, then uh, John Healy, the defence spokesman, will probably become defence minister. He is very good. And so I, I mean, I'm very, I'm very sort of encouraged by the people we've got involved. You know, I've, I've lost an awful lot of faith in the political process in the last few years, but I've never lost my faith in some individuals. And yeah. good individuals are good whichever party they serve in. And of course, yeah. the opposite is also true. You know what, Mike, it's always good to end on a positive. Thank you so much to your time, for your time today and thanks to all of our guests. Uh, that is all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel as well as our home at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Jabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>